0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and welcome. My name is Lise Grande, and I'm the head of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a national public nonpartisan institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We're very pleased to welcome everyone to the launch of a new, important USIP report that focuses on strategic stability in space. The report looks at the factors that are contributing to and driving this instability, and it also looks at the efforts of other countries, including our adversaries to control, perhaps even dominate the use of space, the types of technologies that can enter space, and the resources that are available in space. We have an exceptional group of panelists with us today, each of whom brings deep technical expertise and knowledge. And we're here to discuss what needs to be done to ensure stability in space in light of the factors that are discussed in the report. It's privileged to welcome Dr. Scott Pace, the director of George Washington University's Space Policy Institute. To welcome Professor Bruce McDonald from John Hopkins, who is one of the authors of the report with Dr. Carla Freeman and Allison McFarland. We're very pleased to welcome Dr. Lal from NASA to welcome Dr. Nate Daly from the Meter Corporation and Victoria Sampson, the Director of the Washington Office of the Secure World Foundation. With his permission, I'd like to hand over to Dr. Scott Pace, who is going to be moderating this morning's conversation.
1: Thank you and uh, welcome everyone. Glad, uh, glad to be here on this, uh, this beautiful day. And uh, thank you to the U.S. Institute for Peace for making this great facility. Uh, available uh, for a discussion of, of a really, uh, I think, important topic. Uh, as was said, I'm the director of the Space Policy Institute over at George Washington University, just a, a few blocks in that direction. Uh, so this is a great location. Um, I was part of the, of the scoping group, but I was, uh, as others will quick to point out, that doesn't mean I'm responsible for everything in the report. Um, but was certainly part of a broad range of people who were uh, talked to and inputs were taken and uh, in, in, in thinking about this uh, this topic. Uh, our panelists uh, today again a great group, uh, Bruce McDonald, the lead author here, uh, teaches at that other school, Johns Hopkins uh, University. Um, and uh, I'm proud to say I actually hired a new assistant professor from Johns Hopkins so we we're, uh, we're, we're all good. Uh, he wrote really one of the earliest studies on Chinese space weapons, I think 2008 um, back in the. US security uh, on US Security Council on Foreign Relations so, uh, Bruce has been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, he was at U.S. Institute for Peace for several years, and of course now is at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and like me, is a fallen engineer uh, descended uh, from engineering into, into policy. Uh, Dr. Bhavya uh Associate Administrator for Technology, Policy and Strategy at the uh, Office of the Administrator at, at NASA. Uh, another proud graduate of George Washington University. I'll have to put a plug in for that. Um, but uh, she heads up uh, analytical teams at uh, at NASA headquarters uh, studies and analysis which uh, in many ways replicates some of the things that I did uh, when I was there and taking him in new directions So I, I consider Bobby a, a kind of kindred spirit in bringing analysis to bear on on space issues uh, Nat Daly uh, principal architect uh, system engineering at the MITRE Corporation uh, I would point out that uh, the system engineering he's dealing with it really cuts across all sectors uh, So NASA DOD. Uh, I think you look at some commercial issues uh, some things other civil agencies and maybe a little international Mm -hmm. uh, from time to time. Uh, So in terms of overall, what the overall environment looks like in system engineering, uh, MITRE Corporation has a great amount of technical depth uh, on the subject. Uh, My friend Victoria Sampson, the Washington office of Secure World Foundation, uh, a group that uh, NGO uh, that uh, certainly we've partnered with a long time, uh, worked together on the definition of long-term sustainability of of space activities and what the guidelines were, so we've uh, crossed paths in the UN uh, structure for many years, sometimes cooperating, sometimes competing with the Chinese um, and other countries, Uh, but uh, again, I think a great uh, partnership. And finally, Carla Freeman, senior expert on China here at the U.S. Institute for Peace, uh, also is one of the co-authors of the report with Bruce and uh, Allison McFarland, uh, also in the China program here at USIP. So uh, her work on China's evolving policy towards space as a strategic frontier is one of the areas of interest in China's global policy. Um, And for me, one of the significances of it, we've noticed very carefully how China talks about other areas that it considers core interests. uh, And that language is used um, uh, with respect to things like uh, Taiwan, South China Sea, Tibet, uh, so forth. and I don't know that it's quite been used in space yet, um, but so certainly China's evolving policies towards space, uh, given precedent with other uh, a- areas or shared domains uh, is something of interest. Uh, on administrative details, I note the report is uh, now available uh, online, so it's, uh, it's live, and uh, that you can submit uh, in the course of this discussion. Welcome to submit questions online through the event page. Uh, or if in person, there'll be some note cards uh, being collected and then I'll see them here and uh, I will try to uh, pick uh, what I hope is the most, uh, most interesting or provocative ones. And, uh, and finally, there's coffee and snacks afterwards, so uh, please stick around. Uh, with that, we're going to have about 30, uh, 40 minutes of discussions. Each of our panelists, I uh, have about five, seven minutes. Uh, I've got a series of questions that I'd like to start with uh, and then we'll take uh, questions from the, uh, from the audience. Uh, With that, the lead author, Bruce, inviting you to lead off. Thank you very much, Scott, and uh, welcome everybody
2: here to USIP. Um, This whole effort got started um, with uh, Patricia Kim and uh, Jennifer Statz here at the Peace Institute about three or four years ago, Uh, and there was growing concerns even then over the trajectory of U.S.-Chinese relations, and the lack of mechanisms to resolve uh, issues peacefully, and uh, the uh, and there were concerns about you know conflict, especially going into nuclear conflict, um, and the, this led to the report enhancing U.S.-China strategic stability in an era of uh, of uh, competition, strategic competition, uh, about two years ago. Uh, and this led on to a follow-on effort that became more focused on uh, a particular uh, aspect of that uh, growing uh, instability, which was space, which has become a very topical issue, uh, not to mention balloons of recent, uh, recent vintage. But um, uh, the, uh, we're facing unprecedented challenges in space and destabilizing challenges as space technology <laughs> grows by leaps and bounds uh, just much faster than I think most people are even aware of. Uh, some of the changes are revolutionary, some re- are almost elementary and yet have profound impacts, particularly on the business side of space. So, uh, this, this uh, uh, led to discussions with, among several of us Uh, about looking specifically at space and what the challenges to stability are uh, in space. Uh, This is just another mix added, uh, another issue added to the overall concerns of instability in uh, U.S.-Chinese relations. Uh, We've uh, uh, benefited, fortunately, in the development of of this study, benefited from an able panel of experts, two of whom are here with us today, and uh, the others who've uh, contributed, uh, made great contributions, indeed, to us. And uh, uh, we are looking at, um, there are many potential drivers of instability in space, and we, we polled our, 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 uh, our experts to find out which of these were the, were the most pressing. Uh, you can take your pick from many, and they, and they did. But the uh, three, three issues emerged as most concerning. One, one is the issue of what's called entanglement of conventional and nuclear space sensor systems, which poses the threat of an unintended escalation of a, con- of a con- purely conventional conflict into the nuclear realm which nobody wants to see. It wouldn't be in China's interest. It wouldn't be in the United States' interest. But wars have been known in the past to, to escalate when neither side intended them to, to escalate. And uh, in wh- where nuclear weapons are involved, that could be very scary. Uh, so, this, po- this poses a serious threat and the, was, this was far and away the number one identified issue. The second is the, um, that the study looked at was uh, looking at the testing and deployment of what are called direct ascent anti-satellite weapons. These are weapons that would go up and directly collide with a satellite and destroying the satellite, but with the very unfortunate side effect of creating a large debris field which is uh, which could sabotage other satellites that are in orbit, uh, and you, if you take, for example, the Chinese uh, test that they conducted in January of 2011, uh, which created several thousand pieces, uh, detectable pieces, trackable pieces of debris, uh, it could lead to uh, uh, collisions with other satellites as well. Now, just imagine if there were a conflict and you had uh, several hundred satellites broken up, you would create a huge amount of debris which could, which would run the risk of ultimately leading to uh, making large parts of the orbit, orbital area around the Earth unusable. So, uh, and this, and we now have, Several other countries have tested this technology as well, so there's a, there's an issue that needs to be addressed there um, and then the uh, the third issue was the um, is the in here it's of a more benign nature, but looking at the growth of satellites uh just sheer numbers of 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 satellites uh, we've all heard about uh, Elon Musk and uh the number of uh, satellites that he is launching, but to just give you some perspective on this, in the year 2010, there were about 1,000 satellites in orbit. This year, there are over 6,000 satellites in orbit. And get this, the projection, by the end of this decade, there will be about 58,000 satellites in orbit. And you don't have to go much further than that where some of the projections go into hundreds of thousands of satellites in orbit and yet there's no controlling body to try to regulate this. It's a bit like the Wild West out there. Um, And to give you an idea of the impact this is going to have on business uh, and, and, and what the future holds for space with the advances in technology that uh, uh, Morgan Stanley predicts that the space industry will grow from uh, 350 billion dollars back in 2016 up to 1.1 trillion dollars. There's a lot of economic activity that's going on there. So, we have, uh, there's some immense challenges and the technology is growing ever ever faster uh, that is going to create marvelous opportunities economically. We've all heard about the potential benefits to mankind in space, but unfortunately, there are some potential downsides too. And the hope is that we, that the United States and China as the two uh, largest space powers, can work together to at least not agree on everything, we're never gonna agree on everything, but to identify areas of overlapping interests where we can begin to make uh, make progress, and, uh, and so we have uh, in the report some conclusions and recommendations uh, how to address these issues, most of, most of which revolve around the United States and China to get talking again and to address these issues. So uh, with that, and I've, we've been ably helped by uh, outside people and our ex-panel of experts and uh, we're we're proud to have th- this report released, which we hope will lead to a lot of discussion, and questions, and uh, interaction, and hopefully progress. Super. Thank sure. you. Thank you,
1: Bruce. Avia.
3: Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Scott. Um, what Scott didn't say was he was also my dissertation advisor. So. Um, <clears throat> it's always interesting to share the stage with your dissertation advisor. <laughs> um, so I'm going to hit on uh, uh, Bruce's second and third points about the number of objects in debris in space. And um, so if you think the sky is falling, hang on, let me, ooh, was that not, was I not audible before? Okay, I will look down. Um, so, so if you think the sky is falling, you aren't entirely wrong. This January, a 2,500 kilograms NASA satellite retired in, in 2005 re-entered the atmosphere just months before a chinese rocket had had an an uncontrolled re-entry and it isn't just re-entries that are problematic in recent months china has complained that a u.s satellite came too close to comfort for comfort to their space station and there have been a number of close calls to the international space station as well Uh, in 2022 alone we had to conduct uh, three collision avoidance maneuvers Uh, two of them were were fragments from the Russian ASAT test, and the third was a fragment from a 2020 explosion of a Russian upper stage tank. So, so we absolutely have an evolving crisis on our hands. Analysis conducted by NASA's Orbital Debris Program Office shows that the number of objects in space is increasing at, at an exponential pace. It's almost is sort of like a vertical line in the last many years. Uh, 2022 alone saw nearly 180 new launches. That's about four launches a week and deploying more than 2,300 spacecraft into Earth orbit. And as of 2023, as I think Bruce mentioned, there's more than 7,000 working satellites in, in space. Uh, and again, you know, the core point is working because there's many, many more defunct, n- non-working satellites. And just the number of satellites, working satellites alone, that's 20 times uh, those uh, as in 1982. Low Earth orbit, the region of space below 2,000 kilometers, has the highest concentration of operational spacecraft as well as debris. But actually something has changed and I think uh, Bruce kind of hinted to that. So between 2000 and 2010, it was the Chinese ASAT test test, um, and the the collision between uh, a US satellite and a a Russian satellite uh, drove most of the increase. But since 2010, between 2010 to 2023, the proliferation of CubeSats and the deployment of large constellations of spacecraft were primarily responsible for the number of objects in, uh, below 700 kilometers. And the other thing that's important to note because, you know, Bruce talked about the role of government, it's a private sector that's leading this transformation. Just two companies, SpaceX and OneWeb, have launched nearly 4,400 satellites between just the two of them. And these satellites are part of what, you know, what we call mega constellations, which are basically a group of satellites working together as a team. Uh, and, and there's hundreds of, uh, uh, of, or thousands of individual satellites in this. And if you look at ITU filings, and again, Bruce hinted to that, the number of satellites should be launched in the coming years is staggering. Over 430,000 are planned, and obviously, you know, we don't know how many actually end up being in, in orbit, but we do need to start to think about this. These satellites will need to avoid each other and other spacecraft, and they actually, then need to re-enter the atmosphere too, since that's the actual disposal plan for them. And it's hard to believe, but while there are guidelines on how to behave in space, there is no formal governance or what we call authorization or supervision as required by Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, and again, mega constellations just are one part of the debris challenge. There's more than uh, 47,000 objects bigger than 10 centimeters as of this year, and and larger objects are just the tip of the iceberg. There's uh, you know a million objects over I think um, uh, a millimeter, and and hundreds of millions, um, uh, so ra- ranging from you know the size of dust particles to flecks of paint, that are too small to be tracked. And actually these are the debris that that present the most near-term mission-ending risk to operational spacecraft. And given how heavily our economy and our society uh, started to depend on these spacecraft. It is really important to to make sure that they continue to stay operational. 22 was an eventful year, as I said earlier. We detected four on-orbit fragmentations, uh, one Russian, two Japanese, one Chinese. Uh, Each of them generated hundreds of fragments larger than, um, large enough to be tracked, and, of course, many more too small to be tracked. And, of course, this task of tracking is getting harder. Uh, and of course, one major challenge is even if we manage our own satellites, our own private companies, and remove our own debris, it's not enough. We, we own less than half of the total number of objects in space. You know, the rest belong to China, Russia, I think it's about 30%, China, about 20%, and other countries. And by treaty, we cannot touch other countries' objects without their, their permission. Uh, I mean, of course, this is a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. Space is a big, diverse, and innovative sector, and together we can come up with approaches that don't just involve technology, but regulatory policy and other kind of innovations. Uh, the White House and NASA are doing a lot of work in this area, and actually Scott started a lot of that, and, and we can talk about that later on. But I just want to end by saying that you know, I spent 25 years in Boston before I came to DC. In Boston, we, we call the debris problem wicked hard. <laughs> and, and to solve problems like this, we really need all hands on deck and the hands had better also be Chinese. It's not a problem America can solve alone. So let's roll up our sleeves and get to work.
1: Excellent. Okay, Matt,
4: you're next. Thank you. Up. Thank you, Scott. I'd also like to point out that uh, on my doctoral committee was Bruce oh, okay. well, then. <laughs> so I'm also sharing this stage with one of my committee members and so um, thank you for the opportunity to contribute to the scoping committee early on in this in this research and the opportunity to speak here today what I I'd, I'd like to do is take uh, some of the passages that really struck me in this report and um, highlight these for the audience and, and, and I have a few comments <coughs> on those um, the report quotes uh, an uncertain area in which domestic and international policymaking is hard pressed to keep up with technological advances in the field. Um, I would also add technology plus business plus economics and strategy. So strategy, business, and technology—those—that's the equation for enterprise architecture, and that's kind of my trade as an enterprise architect in the in the space community. So I'd say it's uh, it's a little bit more. I'll talk to that a little bit more uh, further on. <coughs> um, The report says, spacefaring powers and space stakeholders need to, quote, take urgent action to address the implications of this surge in space technology before major problems ensue in the economic and military dimensions of the space domain. Dialogue and cooperation among space powers to address these issues has never been more needed. Um, I believe that the disciplines of research, development, technology, and engineering, systems engineering, and architecture can contribute to that dialogue and cooperation by underscoring its support with direct linkages between space situational awareness to policy and apparent uh, behaviors. Uh, The report says, as two of the world's three most formidable space powers, the United States and China both have incentives and opportunities to promote this sort of communication and cooperation. I have a few quotes to highlight that um, later on, but I would add that... (coughs) um, well, I'll, I'll get to that later on. So, furthermore, um, I like that the report uh, addresses, it would appear worthwhile for US policymakers to review whether US national security concerns about restricting the transfer of space-related technologies to China, and it, that it might be better served by focusing on restrictions than by broad prohibition on a dialogue um, with China on important issues. Uh, the, the, same, the report goes on to suggest that the United States could work on some aspects of space, technology, and policy with China, where there are opportunities of mutual benefit uh, while consciously avoiding other sensitive areas. So I would point to the successes of the the Federal Aviation Administration's um, ASIAS uh, program, the Aviation Safety Information Analysis and Sharing System. I think that's a good example uh, for a systems-oriented solution. It focuses on a minimum viable set of information um, that's agreed upon that can set And and all the participants uh, from the airline industry have agreed to uh, to that minimum viable set because uh, it mitigates risk of spilling proprietary information that would give a competitor any advantage. So it's important to kind of focus on a minimum viable information set that might focus on something like a space or space flight safety. Interactions with China could uh, also provide important insights into uh, directions Chinese space planning is taking. Um, The U.S. The Soviet Apollo-Soyuz project that led uh, a joint mission between the US and the Soviets in 1975, um, the first international crewed space mission, by the way, um, showed that it is possible to cooperate uh, in space with a sophisticated adversary without losing vital secrets to that rival. So although China poses a challenge to US and allied interests and space overlapping interests, they still exist. Both sides uh, see great opportunity in space, despite differences in perspectives. Um, But space doesn't care. Um, Space debris is indiscriminate um, about whose satellites it crashes into. Um, The recent 4 January low intensity explosion breakup of Cosmos 2499 and the associated 85 pieces um, at uh, 1169 kilometers um, altitude exemplify that. So both sides have an interest in uh, more efficient space traffic management than ever uh, in this congested environment. And both sides share these interests uh, with other space actors as well. Uh, The report also goes on to address unilateral, bilateral, and multilateral action to to tackle these three drivers um, that uh, Bruce enumerated um, of instability that take various forms and encompass not only a dialogue, uh, but also concrete steps that build on unilateral measures um, and one another. I'd add that uh, another information sharing design, polycentricism, is a potential candidate uh, for future US-China space relations, as I alluded to with the Space Asias, uh system. In fact, I- in 2022, Dr. Mariba Jaw testified before Congress regarding um, manufacturing in space. He said, in order to meet the needs of this community, there must be an unambiguated, distributed, immutable ledger of who did what to whom, when, and where. As of this very testimony, I would challenge any government to demonstrate that it is currently capable of delivering such a capability. More complaints of harmful interference, damage, and threats will be raised whilst we are left ill-prepared to assemble the evidence required to assess and quantify space events and activities. So let me give you another example from uh, some of my original research in the field from 2019. And this is from China's deputy director uh, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at the World Space Forum. He said, reshaping and adaptation of space traffic management initiatives involves complex questions. Who will be the manager? Who will manage STM? Um, How will and how can we combine all stakeholder aspects of space technology and policy with China, uh, where there are opportunities and mutual benefits while consciously avoiding sensitive areas?" Unquote. So again, I'd point to the successes of that uh, ASIAS program, because it sets a good example of a systems-oriented solution. It focuses on that minimum viable information set that that, uh, I had mentioned. All right, so I'd argue that both sides recognize the value of purposely engineered systems for coupling information-shared systems that promote international transparency and confidence-building measures. Architecture and system engineering, they can be utilized to galvanize strategic and constructive uh, engagement plans uh, to achieve conditions of stability in space and subsequently a viable global space economy. Social sciences and constructive engagement methods can be coupled with systems engineering and architectures in impactful ways. Uh, The space-peace-conflict spectrum requires mindful and purposeful integration. Um, Without shaping its progress, we're left watching uh, it to play out as Russia conducts ASAT testing uncannily close to uh, the invasion of the Ukraine or threats to Starlink and Biasat um, continued. So indeed, as we've seen last year, the consequences of doing nothing are, are, not, are not nothing. Um, with respect to policy, polycentricism, I'll, 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 I'll wrap up with this. Victor and Eleanor Ostrom you know, first theorized that political units could operate in a coherent manner with predictable patterns, that is a system, uh, to the extent that they take each other into account in competitive relationships, enter into various contractual and cooperative undertakings, and have recourse to central mechanisms to resolve conflicts. So in this way, we can weave a fabric of information flows that intentionally strengthens efforts of constructive engagements toward the goal of realizing conditions of stability that are better for business, create economic conditions for all to flourish. So these polycentric kinds of designs for information flows and governments could result in the creation of stronger and more hubs and flows, which can catalyze norms, cascades as well. So I'll conclude with that for now.
1: Okay. lots to think about. And Victoria.
5: Thanks, Scott. Um, this is exciting for me because there are not one, not two, but three size people on the panel. <laughs> no one ever is from SAIS and space. This is just like a big day for me. Anyways, uh, thank you to USIP for inviting me to participate and to speak at this panel. Um, I'll be talking about two things essentially during the few minutes I have. Um, first of all, talking about counter space capabilities and then a little bit about the UN discussions on space security. Um, my counter space discussions come from um, the, my organization, the Secure Bill Foundation, we're a nonprofit that focuses on the long-term sustainable use of outer space. Um, my, I'm the co-editor of our Global Counterspace Threat Assessment, which we put out every year. It's an unclassified source of um, looking at counter space capabilities that we see around the world. We look at five different categories. Um, one of them is direct to send ASAT, has been discussed here. Uh, Another one is co-orbital, where the interceptor gets up into orbit and either does a close approach to interfere or some way in which take out the target. Um, Another one is directed energy, looking at lasers, essentially, mostly to um, affect imagery. Um, One is, uh, the fourth is um, radio frequency interference, jamming. And then the fifth is cyber. I will not go into exhaustive detail on all those, but I will point out that when we first started working on this um, document in 2018, we had six countries we were covering. Um, the most recent version um, from last year, we're in process updating it now, but the 2022 version has 11 countries. So you can see that this topic is um, growing and counter um, space capabilities are proliferating. Um, relevant to this discussion, I'll focus mostly on direct descent ASAT. Um, so there's strong evidence that China's been doing a sustained uh, amount of research and development on a broad range of counter space capabilities, and they've got one, possibly three, um, programs to develop a direct descent anti-satellite capability, um, but I'd like to you know divide that into two different options one um, Looking at what kind of targets it can hit um, specifically? How high up can they go? Um, so low earth orbit is about zero to two thousand kilometers um, And it has a mature capability to be able to target those um, satellites that are there uh, but higher up medium earth orbit, which is about Um, let's see, 20,000 kilometers, I'm talking to a US audience, 12,000 miles, Um, and then again, uh, geostationary orbit, which 36,000 kilometers, 24,000 miles, does not have that capability. And I think it's important to make that distinction because oftentimes, you know, here in the media, we say, okay, China can hit US satellites, and you assume that every satellite everywhere is a threat, not exactly. Uh, I don't want to downplay the threat, but I think you cannot make good policy decisions if you don't have a good sense of what the threat actually is. And then just to kind of contextualize it, the United States has um, no official direct to anti-satellite weapons program, but um, it has demonstrated a direct to anti-satellite capability with its missile defense interceptors in 2008 when it shot down a deorbiting US um, satellite. And so that is operational, it's there. and the U.S. has developed direct ascent anti-satellite capabilities in the past, both um, kinetic and nuclear, and probably could develop them pretty quickly if it decided to do so in the near future. Um, and so I'm happy to talk more about counter-space stuff in the, um, if there's more Q&A. But just talking specifically about, you know, how do we handle this sort of thing? Um, the United Nations um, has been focusing on various aspects of space, uh, both civil space and security space. Um, the civil space side of the house, which Scott Pace has been very involved in, I think has done a lot of work in terms of establishing um, guidelines for long-term sustainable use of space. Um, the security side of the house, the UN has been stopped. And this is not just a space thing. Um, it's been a you know a, a non-proliferation thing um, where they haven't been able to agree on the agenda to discuss, much less move ahead in discussions. And um, having followed these discussions for over a decade plus, you know, the part of the problem is that there's a, a disconnect in terms of how the major players identify what the threat is for space. Um, the US and its allies look at it more of a congestion test and almost an environmental issue where behavioral aspects are concerned, you know, bad behavior on orbit. Uh, whereas Russia and China and their um, allies tend to focus more on they're worried about a specifically designed weapon being placed into space and targeting from space to ground, essentially space based missile defense interceptors. Um, and then, so the, that's one disconnect. And the other disconnect is how do you handle this? Do you do a treaty? Uh, which frankly, there has not been a real treaty on space in four plus decades. So probably not, at least not right now. Or do you do a non-binding norms approach? And that's kind of where the UN has gone to at this point. Um, they've had, a, they're entering year two of a two-year program called an open-ended working group, which is a very UN designation. But basically it's the idea that it's open to any UN member that wants to participate in discussion on space threats. And it's meant to be inclusive, so civil society is allowed to participate in terms of being there to watch so i was actually just um, they had the third meeting out of four last week in geneva um, i was there i'm, I'm just kind of in a civil society observational um category and so it's been interesting because they're trying to define what the major threats are to space security and stability and how do you identify responsible behavior in space and so you know obviously there's you know not 100 agreement and we can go into where probably some of the problems are later but I will point out, like one of the things that's coming up is a lot of countries are identifying things like deliberately creating debris on orbit as something that's irresponsible, that is to say uh, through you know de- deliberately having destructive direct descent anti-satellite missile tests. And this builds on to um, a, a unilateral commitment the United States made, um, actually we're coming up on a year anniversary, uh, it was April of 2022, mm-hmm where the U.S. made the commitment not to conduct destructive anti-satellite missile tests. It has since been joined into that commitment by nine countries. Um, So there's 10 countries total, um, and I think there's going to be a few more coming on soon. Um, But also, there's a U.N. General Assembly resolution in December, where 155 countries voted in support of this type of commitment. And so you can see, okay, we're seeing this sort of norm evolving or this idea of responsible behavior evolving. And you know, there are some people who will look at this issue and say, well, you know, if it's really that you know important and scary, why don't we have a treaty? Well, you know, treaties don't just jump out a whole cloth you know you have to have discussions and then you, you know, look at the outer space treaty there are discussions in the UN General Assembly Resolutions and then eventually an outer space treaty so I think just because it doesn't solve every problem doesn't mean it can't be helpful in solving this problem the problem is of course as Pavia brought out the idea of debris I mean the debris that's created from these anti-satellite tests it's agnostic it does not care if you are an ally the person who created it, if you are in its way, you'll be affected by it. And you know, as of right now, we don't have any way in which to take out debris that's created. There, there are a lot of companies working on that, and I hope that'll happen soon. But for right now, what's up there, we're stuck with. And so the idea is you don't want to deliberate more. Um, so hopefully, the Structus and Antisella um, Test Moratorium will continue and be expanded upon. I look forward to discussing more uh, during the panel, thank you.
3: An analogy somebody once gave me was that, you know, being in a pool, <laughs> you know, if somebody pees in the pool, you can't really <laughs> be safe. <laughs> that is very accurate, yes?
6: <laughs> Carla? Well, oh, I guess it's good afternoon now, and, and thanks so much. Uh, as the USIP China team representative uh, on the panel and, and uh, a co author on the report, uh, it's really my honor to join such an esteemed group of experts uh, today and, and all of you in the audience. I also wanna mention that if we had been able to squeeze another chair on, the, on this podium, on this uh, stage, uh, the third author on the report, Ally McFarland, would be joining me here and making remarks. And I see our publications team way up there and I wanna thank them for their hard work on this report, which is now live on the website and will be uh, in hard copy, I think, quite soon. So uh, look, as, as we look for uh, pathways to stability in space, uh, we understand China as a highly competitive actor in space uh, with ambitions to lead uh, space-related innovation, exploration, commercial activities, uh, military capabilities. Uh, China understands space as the commanding heights uh, in future economic development and, and warfare. Uh, and it, it appears to be pursuing a goal of leading or even dominating uh, the use of space between the Earth and the Moon. It's been ratcheting up uh, milestone after milestone in space, uh, suggesting that that goal may be achievable, at least it looks that way. It's not just headlines like uh, the completion of the Beidou satellite net network or the landing of uh, the the uh, placement of the U-2 uh, uh, Jade Rabbit uh, Rover on the far side of the Moon or its uh, Tiangong Space Station or plans for these long uh, mega constellations, uh, but also its expansion of a range of national security and counter space programs that uh, some fellow panelists uh, study closely. Uh, Let me just uh, add a couple of points to the discussion already laid out by by these experts uh, here. Uh, With the space environment, uh, a global commons uh, beyond the sovereign control of any any state and and accessible uh, to all, uh, the growing congestion in space, as, as more and more players enter space, has been described, along with intensifying great power competition, and particularly us china strategic rivalry, uh, and, and then all of China's ambitions, its, its civilian, its military capabilities, and all of these activities in space, all of these elevate the risk of a tragedy of the commons uh, situation. So, in our report, we approach the challenge of China and instability in space from the point of view that sustaining the stability, that the usability of space, is a global issue on which the United States can lead and which all countries, including China, are stakeholders in. The fact is that space de- debris, as Nate said, is indiscriminate uh, in uh, what it strikes, it doesn't know what country's assets, what country's assets it, uh, it's hitting. Uh, and uh, coordinating satellite orbits for mega constellations have broad. Uh, uh, international benefits, uh, uh, both technical and actually that go to our very human identity uh, in that unregulated unreg- uh, growth could be disruptive to, to science uh, but also uh, could literally brighten uh, the night sky. Uh, and then lowering the risk of entanglement of course is, is key to re- reducing the risk of, of an existential issue of nuclear warfare. Uh, so I thought I would contribute uh, to the discussion today just by laying out briefly what China's positions on all of the three issues that we highlight in the report are. Uh, first, uh, nuclear entanglement. Uh, as we point out in the report, China has indicated that a US use of strategic nuclear satellite assets in a purely uh, non-nuclear role would make them uh, legitimate uh, targets uh, of uh, Chinese and, and uh Chinese anti-satellite actions, and so that suggests that in the event of a conventional conflict uh, between the two nations, the U.S. has to be prepared for uh, potential Chinese attacks on on an essential part of our our, uh, nuclear infrastructure. So we have, of course, proposed that the U.S. take steps uh, unilaterally to disentangle its nuclear and conventional uh, mission architectures uh, and encourage, uh, as well, a U.S.-China strategic stability dialogue um, and the two sides appeared to agree, at least at the Biden-Xi meeting in, in, uh, in uh, November 2021, that that was a good idea. Uh, but that, that dialogue hasn't taken place, even as, as Beijing continues to expand its nuclear arsenal and the US is modernizing its own. Uh, and, and Bruce mentioned uh, the 2021 USIP report. And I think that presciently reflected, uh, uh, given uh, that the two countries have never launched any regular official dialogue on strategic stability. Uh, that that there's a significant perception gap over the potential impact of US missile defense on China's second strike capability. And the idea is if that failure to bridge the gap persists, uh, Beijing's just gonna continue to to build up its nuclear forces. And that will inspire uh, a security dilemma. Uh, And uh, in Washington, that that Beijing is intent on on transitioning to a far more aggressive, uh, dangerous nuclear posture. On debris, uh, to date, uh, China's taken a, a pretty defensive position with respect to its, its ASAT test uh, and uh, to DA ASAT testing and space debris generally. Mm-hmm. Some Chinese experts have uh, sought to or have articulated a justification for the 2007 ASAT test that gen- generated such a massive debris cloud on the grounds that the current space regime lacks regulations on space debris and what constitutes quote unquote harmful contamination. And in the aftermath of the launch, a number of Chinese analysts contended that a key motive for the, the, the test was peaceful, actually aimed at encouraging uh, the United States to undertake uh, uh, space arms control. Uh, As I've written elsewhere, uh, Chinese scholars, so these are unofficial views, uh, they've also criticized the current space regime with respect to regulations on space debris, uh, notably been on the defensive about their own debris cloud, uh, including invoking Lex Veranda on the idea that states may establish new rules by their legal acts, a concept uh, also used by some Chinese legal scholars with respect to to maritime rights. Uh, And Chinese experts have also invoked the right under uh, the OST to dispose of the satellite, their satellites as Chinese national property. In addition, in defending the test, uh, they've explicitly pointed to the principle of free access, which is interesting, adding that space is not the privilege of any single country, but for all countries to enjoy the province of mankind. Uh, this past des- December, as uh, Victoria mentioned, China voted against the a UN G- General Assembly resolution for countries not to t- conduct direct descent. Desatellite satellite tests that create space debris. Uh, just to wrap up, uh, at the same time all of this is happening, China has also called for improvements uh, to space governance, uh, particularly with respect to the protection of space assets. Uh, also talking informally about establishing technical and technological approaches to mitigating debris. So, I guess uh, to say, given the high stakes of inaction, we, we propose some fairly modest ways set forward uh, have been described that reflect the fact that these are areas where our two countries and the international community have profound and, and even, I would say, a- existential stakes Stop there.
1: Awesome. Okay. Super. Um, I, I noticed on the agenda I was given a little time to uh, sort of reply, reply and rebut. But um, really, this is about the, the panelists. But if, if I might take uh, moderator privilege to just uh, to have a few comments. Um, so one of the things that maybe uh, not a statement, really, a question. Is you know, sort of, what do we mean by instability? Uh, because of course, there's all kinds of instability: nuclear escalation, stability, sort of crisis stability, uh, first mover advantage. Uh, some things done by RAND, I think, on what my first mover advantage might be. Um, you know, and uh, you know, does it mean that we're concerned about a lack of of resilience, that we we don't have enough uh, stability, and therefore somebody might get a benefit from an attack? Uh, so the linkage between conventional and and nuclear escalation Um, and if that latter is the case there could be an argument for active defenses in space in order to defend against uh, attacks to create greater resilience and therefore greater crisis stability but that of course produces a linkages between space-based defenses ballistic missile defenses ground-based ASATs so previous things which are kind of in separate compartments start becoming very very linked and it's really hard to figure out how the other side is going to perceive all that you know without having some more of these dialogues unfortunately it's a dialogue that really hasn't happened we've tried to have uh... the chinese dialogues and three-party talks of course on nuclear we've tried to have uh... a number of of security uh, discussions and of course those haven't really happened and on one hand the voice of optimism says that Uh, We're not that far apart from China on many space things. We've had positive discussions, for example, on space resources. We've had some space science activities, although we wish they were more open about some of their data. Uh, We have uh, areas where I I think we are in agreement about some things that have a common threat, like like space debris. On the other hand, we've seen China's behavior in other shared domains that uh, don't follow really rules of international law, whether it's Antarctica, uh, whether it's the South China Sea, whether it's Uyghurs, Tibets, Taiwan—I mean, the list goes on. Um, so space isn't yet in one of those, I think, crisis categories where it's a zero-sum game discussion. Uh, so there's hope, but on the other hand, behavior in other domains, of course, uh, has been has been problematic. Um, I think one of the uh, uh, other things we should sort of uh, sort of uh, think about um, is. Where where could we have some starts at, at discussion? Um, you know, to some extent, it's, it's important to realize that space cooperation follows political events; it doesn't precede them. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned, Apollo Soyuz Test Project was done out of a detente uh, decision b- between the Soviet Union and United States, coming out of a summit meeting with Nixon and Brezhnev, and it followed after that. We didn't have space cooperation first, and then we decided we're going to have detente. So, the political conditions I think have to be there so we can't have space cooperation get too far out ahead of where the political realities are nonetheless I think there are things that we could do open exchange of scientific data exchange of biomedical data for example lunar sample exchanges Uh, you can imagine a number of things uh, that that could be done that the the political freight could bear but it's important not to overreach and and do things that uh, I I think that it can't Uh, one suggestion that I've heard for uh, impr- finding a channel, given how fraught bilateral U.S.-China discussions might be, is to take a model from what the U.N. has done uh, on GPS and GNSS and Beidou and so forth. There is a international consultative group associated uh, with the, the U.N. Outer Space Committee, Outer Space Office. Uh, that's merely an information sharing entity, and you <coughs> could imagine, and so the ICG for GNSS. Uh, has met for uh, years and years and has been a source of increasing transparency among operators of satellite navigation systems. One could imagine a similar sort of structure information only sharing no authority but where states at the state party level would come to discuss information about say lunar operations. Be very careful not to cross streams with Geneva and open ended working group and conference on disarmament but there's a number of fairly imminent decisions that we need to make. If we're going to be on the South Pole of the Moon, Chinese are going to be on the South Pole of the Moon. How big is your landing zone? Uh, What's guard frequency? Uh, We have positive commitments under for the uh, rescue and return of astronauts. How do we carry out our space safety sort of obligations? Uh, So there are plenty of things I think to discuss in a purely civil, international, even commercial kind of activity that we could do in a multilateral forum that would not necessarily have to implicate you know a US China security dialogue w- worthwhile as that is I don't think we can wait for it because there is other operations uh, that are going to be going on fairly soon now at the um, uh, a f- a final uh, two comments um, a lot of discussion about norms of behavior um, sometimes uh, give the idea that norms are a thing that they are a rule that others are then obligated to follow Um, It's like saying, because I have a stop sign, there won't be somebody running through the stop sign. Having a stop sign is really important, not because it stops a speeder, but because it's a signal to the community that established the stop sign as to what they value. So I would argue that norms are more for our friends than they are for our adversaries. They're more for here's what responsible behavior looks like and here's people who share that. And we want that to be as broad as possible and as many people as possible to share in that. But the idea is when bad things happen, we want to be able to turn to our friends and allies and go. We all agree that was bad, right? Um, and now, what do we? How do we respond to that? Um, so it's a different way of looking at norms. Uh, and then finally, maybe perhaps on a on a maybe on a pessimistic note, and maybe Carl can push back on me on this one. Um, it really doesn't have to be this way with China. Um, you know, it was certainly it's cer- it's certainly been a history that Asia has done better as as China has grown and become. Uh, become wealthy and positive. One can certainly look at uh, where Taiwan is today. You can look at what Hong Kong used to be, uh, and say that you know that Chinese culture, Chinese people, the Chinese economies, and history all have very very positive contributions to make to the world. The problem is the Chinese Communist Party, and we've seen uh, many of my China scholar friends, you you know, are kind of depressed um, because they had seen what they thought was a progression uh, since Mao with Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin, Hu Xintao. And now we come to Xi Jinping, who has taken the party in a very, very different direction. Um, And some extent be internally criticized for maybe making too many enemies on too many fronts at once. But his behavior is one that looks pretty much like a very committed Marxist-Leninist, a Leninist party, which suborns other things in society to that. Again, doesn't mean we can't deal with it and find ways to peacefully coexist as the old phrase goes. But China has made a choice politically. Um, and it didn't need to be that way, but it is what it is. And so at the end of the day, when we think about our common interest in space, uh, it's not going to be enough to uh, get agreement with fellow space people uh, that we all kind of know and like and appreciate. Fundamentally, there's going to be a political decisions in how China relates to the rest of the world, of which space is sort of just going to be a symptom. I'll stop there. Um, let me turn and go to um, uh, sort of the uh, the moderated uh, kind of questions, and I kind of threw this out to begin with, is uh, what does crisis stability in space uh, mean in context, in terms of the report, in terms of uh, what you think we ought to be uh, focused on, and how does that differ between the U.S. view and say a China view in talking about crisis stability? Over to anyone.
4: I can comment on <laughs> on that a little bit. Um, and this ties back to what you mentioned about norms. Um, most people are familiar with uh, Finnimore and seekirk's seminal work on, on international norms and the norms cascade and the tipping point and uh, uh, reaching critical mass. Um, but uh, also in that same report, um, Finnemore and, and Seeker talk about what they refer to as how interdiscursivity leads to intersubjectivity. In other words, the more you talk, the more you understand each other, and the, the inter being the, the point. You can have different conversations um, t- about the same thing because they're in different contexts, but the inter implies that there is some kind of connection across those two contexts that bridge that bridge them. And I think that helps to understand that sometimes. Um, I, I, let's see, the subtitle says, Pathways to Peace in an Era of U.S. and China Strategic Competition. Sometimes it's more about the pathway than, than it is about peace. And I think in that context, through constructive engagement, uh, which uh, Finamore is a constructivist, um, I think that's uh, a clue that points to uh, that pathway. Simply having those conversations, I think, uh, is, an, is an important thing to help ameliorate those differences of, of mindset.
1: Um, point, one, a, a friend of mine, um, all of you probably know, Rose Gottemuller, who is the negotiator, you know, in sort of New START, uh, she wrote a wonderful book about her experience you know, doing sort of negotiation. And one of her you know, endpoints was her stress of the importance of, of c- maintaining and continuing strategic dialogue, not because you think you're going to get a product next week, but to make sure that you had at least an understanding of, you know, sort of the world views, are so that if you do have an opportunity to do something, you're not starting from scratch. And, and so I think she was successful in part because she, she was well known. They knew her, Russians knew her, she knew them. There was no fooling around uh, and getting to know you. And so, so you're preparing maybe for a future opportunity, if not one today. But, but Bruce, uh, instability? Yeah, uh,
2: I think of instability in a classic almost physics sort of way, and I don't, for those who are not physicists in the audience, I don't want you to be turned off by that. Uh, The idea of stability is that if there's a small, if you have a system and you perturb it a little bit, that it is in the natural inclination of that system to want to return to a stable point again. A little bit like if you had a a pendulum, you'd you'd divert it a little bit, and it goes back and forth and it stabilizes. An unstable or instability is where you have a, a, diver, a perturbation and it just gets worse and worse and worse. You have, uh, in the nuclear realm, escalation. Um, and so when I think about uh, stability in space, which, oh my god, gives me a chance to plug a recent publication that I had on crisis stability in space. Uh, but. Um, uh, I think of it in terms of that you have a system that is set up so that you are as impervious as you can be to destabilizing actions, which I think of it also in, in the way that was described by uh, General Haydn, uh as your adversary wakes up and says, nah, not today. It, it's, it, it isn't going to work out well for me if I do this. That's why, although I voiced concern about these mega constellations, that uh, the one the one thing that's very appealing about them is that they make it almost impossible to uh, uh, to negate your adversary's uh, uh, system, that and you and you can't do you can't negate his and he can't negate yours, so that you have no incentive to want to attack. Whereas in the way we used to monitor, or we're in the process of transitioning away from. Uh, we used to have just a few detection satellites for ICBM launches, and you, so that there aren't many targets to take out. And if you can successfully attack just a few, you can deal uh, you can deal a really harsh blow to your to your adversary, and that's a very destabilizing. Uh, situation where there are advantages in the, uh, to going first whereas when you have a whole big constellation of satellites uh, which it, it's hard to negate the the impact of the entire system and so it, that's a more stabilized situation the problem comes by having unregulated growth or uncontrolled growth in that so to me you there are various techniques you want to develop uh to which could build stability into the system by the way that your
1: system is set up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. carla price stability from a chinese viewpoint maybe space or generally
6: i'm not sure i can uh, answer that question clearly i mean i I, china is uh, is both strategic and has a a, an approach where it takes it is very iterative and uh, takes moves forward with policy by testing and then reassessing and then moving forward again. Uh, so uh, I think uh, China is uh, right now uh, viewing space as a, as I suggested, a strategic new frontier, which is language that's used in some draft law. Uh, law, legal uh, language uh, that is in a new uh, national security law, uh, and China is looking at every possible opportunity in space. What I think China would like to see is more governance of the kind of UN, UN-centered governance that reflects China's preferences uh, in all facets of, of uh, the, the, on all domains in space, all, all uses, whether commercial uh, or, uh, or military. And uh, and it's not getting much traction in its initiatives, uh, and uh, and so is very frustrated by that. So it was, I think has sort of taken itself out of the game, except to continuously propose with Russia the same uh, treaty legislation, uh, or, sorry, treaty uh, language, uh, and that sort of thing. But I think China sees uh, a UN or centrally governed space regime that protects. Its interests, its commercial interests, its sovereign interests in space, uh, as the key to uh, crisis stability in space.
1: It's, it's, it's interesting because, in other sort of like you know, domains beyond Earth, uh, including the oceans, but also thinking about cyberspace and thinking about space, you know, the tendency internationally seems to be more toward multi-stakeholder kind of analysis and the Russian and Chinese tendency to say that only state parties are really legitimate actors and everybody else is there by sufferance you know is really not the way uh, that certainly the internet develops certainly not the way space is developing in many other areas so I I hear that Chinese position uh, just as I hear the Russian position that only state actors were legitimate actors which is why we got article 6 at the end of the day Um, and uh, and how they're going to adapt to that you know reality, um, when there is more than that. But to the point of of of, of adapting, um, I mean, we go it's maybe one of the larger um, objects in the room is you know, the idea of a space race. You know, so uh, we spend lots of lectures talking about the old Soviet-U.S. space race, There's a lot of talk today about a space race. Uh, my former boss talked about a space race. Uh, you know, sort of with 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 China. Uh, how is Uh, Leaving aside the question, should we characterize it as a race uh, or how should we say, how is the race or competition today different than what it was in the past? And I want to put Bobby on the hot seat because her boss also uses uses the phrase. So what can you tell us about that?
3: Absolutely. So so when Administrator Nelson talks about the space race, he isn't talking about Apollo times. He isn't talking about a one-time landing on the moon. We won that race more than 50 years ago, right? Uh, the space race the administrator is talking about is a strategic competition with multifaceted outcomes, including sustained presence on the moon, Mars, and beyond, for, for, for national economic advantage, for supporting our industry, but, but just as importantly, uh, it, as a net benefit to humanity, uh, such as thing, uh, things like increased knowledge. So that's not how we spoke about space race, space race in the earlier days. And again I just want to remind folks that this strategic competition isn't just about space it's it's you know President Biden talk has called you know China America's most consequential geopolitical challenge so there is this whole of government strategic competition with China and space is an element of that and, and it's, it's uh, the, the race is the investment in R&D in technology and the next generation of workers um, uh, so la- but last point, so that the space race that the administrator talks about is about supporting U.S. values such as broad international participation, scientific data sharing, openness and transparency of motivations, and a focus on a civilian-led uh, space exploration program as opposed to a military-led one. So so that's a space race. That's how we think about the space race at NASA, and that's the one we intend to win. Scott, can I jump in here? Please. Um,
5: so, I often get asked, you know, is the US in a space race with China? And I don't think that's helpful because as Bobby said, that's not the case. But I think that kind of phrasing does put it in an adversarial sort of way, which, you know, again, the US doesn't know what to do about China. I think it's there. we have a difficult relationship with them in many different circumstances, not just space. But um, I think it's it's not helpful because it automatically basically rules out any option for any kind of engagement. And you know whether or not we like it, China is there in space, and they are a major actor. They've got, a hu- they've got humans up in orbit. Um, frankly, their space station is going to outlast the ISS. The International Space Station is going to be, you know, at some point it's going to be done, whether it's n- next year or 2030. Whereas the, the Chinese Tiangong just became operational last year. Um, and then looking at the moon, I mean, I think it's where you know, again, you do not want to automatically replicate um, the power, you know scares in in orbit on the moon. I mean, I think, yes, definitely there's competition and that's, and I think that there's, um that's where you even need more engagement because as was mentioned earlier if you have a common moon landing spots so you want to be able to discuss things you want to make sure you're not accidentally kicking dust up over each other you're not going to be going into each other's zones um, and so you need to be able to speak to each other and have these conversations again whether or not you're partners whether or not you're working with each other you're still actors and you're still in an extremely hostile environment there's no need to make it more hostile by having these um, inadvertent you know, vocabulary choices that lead you to have an automatic adversarial role.
4: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So I'd like to also add um, Dr. Namrata Goswami and, and, and Pete Garrison's book, Scramble for the Skies. You know, they, they look at it, rather than a race, more like a scramble, like the scramble for Africa, like the, uh, uh, the gold rush um, era with the potential economic global economic uh, you know, um, opportunities with these untapped resources. Um, as a scramble, it, it becomes more of a business case. No one, no one nation's tax revenue base can, can financially support the infrastructure that's going to be required uh, to continue a viable um, uh, space exploration and, and lunar resource mining, celestial mining, uh, Mars. Business is going to have to get involved. And in order for business to get involved, it's going to come down to revenue. Right. So there has to be a viable business case in order to do that. It, you're going to have to have infrastructure, and they're going to have to. We're going to have to have uh, um, sustainability assurances to support that infrastructure, so that that stability is created uh, for that business um, globally. Really,
1: well, let me um, remind you to uh, audience to hand in uh, note cards. Um, i have us come down and collect those, and also for people who've made comments uh, online. Um, I can be uh, sort of uh, looking at them, uh, looking at them here, uh, and uh, and pull that up. Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the questions already here is that uh, you know it appears a single bad actor can make Leo and maybe Mio unusable with relatively lower technology capabilities, and that they're you know unstoppable. Uh, is a solution partial mandatory sanctions for developing such capability? I feel like I'm, I'm hearing a, a non-proliferation argument. <laughs> How far do we go?
5: can take first crack at that. I mean, I don't, the Outer Space Treaty allows for countries to have access to space for peaceful use. And that's the issue is that you cannot say, most technology, you cannot say definitively this is meant for peace, this is meant for war when it comes to space. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is just dual purpose. It depends on what you do with it. It's your intention. Mm-hmm. And so when it, that's the problem we run into when the International Committee talks about like, non-proliferation issues. For space is that you can't do we do in other things. For example, if you don't want countries to have nuclear weapons, what do you do? You prevent them from having fissile material. But you can't do that with space because so much of the technology just depends on what you want to do with it. It depends on your intentions and so, That is not a helpful way of looking at it. What is helpful is having the idea of establishing, okay, what is considered responsible behavior? What is considered a norm? So you can call out bad actors, so you can point fingers and say, okay, you actually did a bad thing, as opposed to just saying, well, you don't like my country, so you're gonna criticize anything I do. Um, And it's it's not gonna solve every issue, but I think it's gonna help really establish the practices that make space more stable and predictable over the long term, which is really important.
1: I think that's right. you know I, I would say that uh, uh, g- keying off the question about a race uh, one among one of the other reasons why today is not a race in the same way that it might have been in the past uh, not only is there not a fixed end line and, and and so forth and it's just you know two parties but the 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 competition in the sixties was about you know, look how cool I am. I can do something nobody else can. Don't you want to hang out with me? And so it was in the context of decolonialization. You know, had new independent states that were coming into the UN, bidding for, you know, hearts and minds and all that. So today, with space much more accessible to people, both commercially and many more countries participating in it, leadership is very different. It's not, look how cool I am. It's like, look at all the people who want to work with me. You know, and so it, it has much more, I think, of an inherently cooperative end to it. And I would submit that Russian and Chinese behavior so far has actually been counterproductive to their own interests because people are more reluctant to work with them. Yes, they're important. Yes, and we should be thinking about how to engage or deal with. But I think for a lot of uh, developing countries, uh, they're looking at where are our opportunities and who's going to protect our interests uh, with infrastructure. We're against conflict in space, not just because we don't like conflict, but because we don't want to risk the infrastructure that we're all dependent on. So I think there's in this competition, there's a lot more areas I think of common interest uh, that we have for.
3: And a really good example of that Scott is the number of countries that have signed on to Artemis Accords and the number that we think are going to be signing in the near future.
1: And the Chinese are welcome to sign at any time. At any time. Absolutely. <laughs> and China <laughs> not a joke, not a joke. They and China has not a, uh,
2: uh, won over as many hearts and minds as we have. If there's a race. If there is a race uh, for hearts and minds, the United States is doing, as you're pointing out, Scott, a whole lot better than Russia and China are. And uh, uh, that is, uh, it's one thing uh, mentioning the, the vote uh, uh, in, the, in the United Nations about the direct descent uh, ASAT testing ban. Uh, if it were a close vote, that would be that might say something. But the vote was 155 to nine. Uh, it sounds like a cricket score or something. I mean, it, it, you don't very often see votes that are that lopsided. And if I were China, it would be making me say maybe I need to take a second look at, at my approach because you're not you're not doing very well. And, and uh, uh, the hearts on the hearts and minds issue in space. United States appears to have uh, uh, a big
1: lead. Yeah, And and I would say it's not as if um, this has to be a zero-sum game if the international lunar facility that the the Chinese and Russians you know want to want to do uh, comes together I think it's reasonable to ask well by what principles you govern are you committed to international law are you committed to safe and sustainable operations and so forth and if they did something even semi-reasonable um, I think you could argue for cross-recognition. You know, you guys recognize what we're doing with Artemis. We'll recognize what you're doing uh, there. Uh, we'll have uh, some multilateral channels to discuss operational mm-hmm. issues for safe and responsible operations. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the area to be hopeful, um, and again, it, it could always go bad, but in comparison to, say, the South China Sea. Uh, so I've had friends who, uh, in dialogue with the PLA Navy, talking about safe and responsible operations, and frankly, they were told, you American want this because you want to feel safe out here you don't belong here you should go home mm-hmm. pretty much cuts the conversation off mm-hmm. that's not the case in space that's not the case in operations you know on the moon so we don't necessarily we're not doomed to take what what happens on earth in space. but we should be paying attention to the political leadership their behavior in other areas all of that is relevant but it's it's not fate that it has to be like that. Sorry, editorial, but.
5: Scott, if I could just, um, one point I'd like to make um, for the Artemis Accords, um, you know, there's actually one country that has signed the Artemis Accords and also signed in to participate in the Russia-China International Lunar Research Station, that's the United Arab Emirates. So I think it's really interesting to see, like those are not necessarily competitive, maybe they're complementary. who knows. the International Lunar Research Station is a MOU that Russia and China signed a couple years ago, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And since then, China has kind of quietly stepped back on it, so it's hard to say. Um, but you know, it's possible that they could work together. Um, and the other point I'd like to make as well is, I think oftentimes in the United States, we tend to say that Russia and China, boom. Same team, same thoughts, same, they're not. They have different interests, they have different investments. Frankly, Russia um, has proven definitely they're willing to be a pariah state internationally. They have no commercial space system. Uh, their civil space program is in tatters. Um, they do not have a way in which to build their own space station as much as they say they're going to do one to replace National Space Station. Um, and not many, no countries really wanna work with them. You know, you saw many countries pulled out um, over the past year, in terms of you know working with ESA and NAR's program and things like that, whereas China has been able to effectively use their space program as a soft power outreach in terms of launching other countries' satellites and you know into getting more countries on board for their cooperation. So I think it's important to make the distinction that one does not necessarily have the same ends and goals as the other. Because again, China has a commercial space program uh, sector that's really burgeoning. It's surprising. It really is. So I think it's important to really, you know, look at them separately to figure out what their interests are and what their goals are because that's the only way you can make good policy is having a a clear-eyed look at the situation as it exists not as would help from a political circumstance.
1: A a question uh, here, interesting, it says the the Biden administration talks about the importance of allies in US-China competition. So what role can allies play in space and who are the key allies you know, given their space capabilities. You know, this is not just about the U.S. And, and China, it's really the rest of the world as we've been sort of talking to, but can we drill that down uh, a little, little deeper? Uh, who's the most important ally, if you want to make, uh, make somebody unhappy? <laughs> or what, should we, what should be priorities for, uh, for allies? And... Um, I would argue people? that, if, if I may, that uh, I
2: think our m- most important ally is uh, the European Union, it is so that as, as a as a grouping, uh, there is so much expertise there. Uh, you know, the the small satellite revolution got started by who's uh, uh, it? Was at Surrey and, and for in, in England. That they can't say with given Brexit, what we could say there, but but anyway, that but that the the nice thing is you don't have to pick among among your friends, you, they're, we're, all, we're all working together and we get a lot of benefit. There's a lot of cross-fertilization, these conferences and so forth, and one of the sad things, sad for, for Russia, is that they have isolated themselves and China has not completely isolated itself, but its behavior uh, is, uh, is sort of walling itself off a little bit. And that can't be to their advantage. I mean, the the Chinese like to speak about win-win situations. We don't have to agree on everything, but there are areas in space, common interests that we have, where we can make progress, it seems to me, uh, and that maybe that can form a basis to try to reach out a little bit more. But uh, it's not easy, given uh, current uh, Chinese attitudes.
3: I would build on what, what Bruce said and say, you know, we as a country should be part, one, wanting to partner and, and having as allies countries that share our same values of transparency and peaceful exploration, timely release of scientific data, and, and, and you know, in the context of, of, of debris, you know, planning for safe disposal of, of debris, so, so we shouldn't be picking and choosing, but, you know, uh, sh- you know going forward with countries that share values.
1: Okay. Thoughts?
6: I, I was just going to say I think uh, Japan has been a, an important partner uh, in space for the United States, and uh, values very much align uh, it with, uh, it's, it's to my little limited understanding. But uh, I think uh, in, in even in, in Asia, uh, Japan's uh, role in in, uh, in space cooperation has been very important, and uh, I think uh, the U.S. has benefited from that.
5: It depends on what your allies are for you know are you talking for civil space I mean I would say obviously it's International Space Station which is two sides the Russian side and the the US side as the US Japan European Union and Canada, let's not forget them. They built the arm, they're very proud of it. Um, so, I mean, I, I think those are definitely allies for future space cooperation, but then there's also, okay, what are you looking at for security issues? Are you looking maybe the five eyes are gonna be important, in that sort of thing? Um, are you gonna be looking at, you know, the quad in order to counter um, China? It just, I think it really depends on what your priorities are and where you wanna go. And I think they do not necessarily preclude each other.
1: So if we look at the competition, you know, with, uh and uh, emerging you know, mega constellations and, and, and launch and so forth. Uh, not only is there some, maybe some resiliency benefits, or certainly some commercial benefits. We're seeing things play out, uh, of course, in Ukraine uh, with sort of Starlink. Um, can there be or what conditions might ha- be imposed on cooperation between the United States and China on the regulation of, uh, of these things? You know, would we imagine regulator to regulator dialogues between the FCC and China? That must terrify some people. <laughs> um, you know, what role should the ITU play, uh, you know, in in this situation? Um, I mean, you, when you list the other many potential candidate constellations, you know, many of them will probably not be built. But the ones that probably will be built will be sort of probably the US or Chinese ones. So if you're looking at who's going to be doing that, uh, is that something that, only can occur within a multilateral dialogue? Or can it occur in, in a bilateral structure? What might be the basis for discussion?
4: So here's where I think systems can come into play and architecture can come into play in existing. Uh, regulating without regulating, Okay, so the creation of a space information sharing ecosystem, for example, provides an opportunity to automatically detect anomalous mm-hmm. behavior. Right? So tra- that, that level of transparency contributes to, uh, Uh, the opportunity to self-regulate based on aspirational politics and legitimacy like we saw last year with the declarative, propositional slash declarative norms of uh, anti-satellite testing. That was a phenomenal success. The cascade happened within months and then 155 nations vote. That is a bona (laughs) fide norm and anything other than uh, that at this point is considered deviant behavior if you look at the definition of, 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 of that particular norm. So I think that the contribution from the disciplines of systems engineering can contribute to providing information that con- connects treaties and policies to observed behavior in transparent ways that can uh, that can be almost as beneficial as regulations themselves.
3: But we do need to go beyond um, technology. So, so, for example, I started in my remarks, I talked about a um, you know, Chinese company, the ITU, about a U.S. commercial satellite coming too close, and the U.S. government and their private company not thinking that. So clearly we have different, sta- different protocols on what we judge as safe distance. So we do need to have discussions on, on how we think about that. We have no idea of what Chinese, uh, for their constellations, what their post-mission disposal plans are. <coughs> um, obviously, as space situation awareness, you know, we do need better data sharing. So, so we do, I mean, I think we can do, get a lot done with technology, but we need to go beyond that. Yeah, and I think we also need to
5: look at, okay, what are we trying to regulate? Um, one of the things that comes up a lot, when we talk about these very large constellations, is is there a certain point where you reach carrying capacity in these orbits? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have tens of thousands of satellites in a single orbital shell, maybe, yeah, but no one really knows. Um, and so there's you know, investigation and research going into that, but it's really hard to say, well, we're going to, you know, do some sort of legislation or do some regulation. We don't even know what is our end goal. Um, one thing that I think probably is changing pretty quickly um, is the idea of, you know, the end of life, 25 years after end of life, you have to dispose of your satellite. Within the United States, there's discussion of making it a lot shorter. I honestly don't know, actually. I know the Chinese um, follow the IADC you know, debris mitigation guidelines in terms of that, but I don't know if they've made any statements about, well, we need to shorten the end of life so we don't just have satellites floating around up there for d- decades after they're over. Um, and that would be helpful to have those kind of conversations.
2: Quick comment, um, please one thing i want to emphasize here is that we don't have a whole lot of time the the march of technology in space is exploding for a variety of reasons not the least of which is suddenly it's a whole lot cheaper to do all kinds of things that used to be not considered possible and we only have so much time left so as serious as the problems are now they're probably going to be a lot more intense and potentially a lot more dangerous if we don't start Cooperating in this, uh, or at least engaging, to use the word of choice, uh, with China and other nations as well, pretty soon. That uh, time is not on our side. uh, We may be uh, overtaken by events.
1: So, um, when people talk about conflict, uh, you know, in space, sometimes there's a tendency, particularly among space people, to look at it in, in isolation. You know, satellite to satellite, ASAT, and whatever. But the reality is, these things are all in some larger political context. Somebody is shooting at a satellite not because they don't like a satellite, but because it's doing something they don't like or they feel threatening. There's some other political or military context for it. And of course, the one uh, that's most uh, here is the issue of of, of of Taiwan and what what might go on and what role space you know might play. Uh, and people are looking at lessons learned from the Ukraine situation. Are there lessons learned for, for sort of for for Taiwan? How important is sort of space security relative to sort of the the Taiwan scenario? Is it a sideshow? Is it uh, a nice to have? And really, the real action is in landing craft and submarines and and uh, air power projection. And space is you know kind of a, you know kind of it's cute. It's there, but uh, it's not sort of central. The issue of the centrality of of space to uh, stability in the Western Pacific and, and the Indo-Pacific, you know, generally, how would you how would you characterize that? Let me
6: let me share the the this a little bit uh, of, about what I what I know about this is the, of course the Taiwan issue is the core issue for China and uh, having watched uh, you know the U.S. use uh, its space-based uh, assets to fight effectively in uh, the Gulf War, uh, that really. Uh, shifted China's uh, military approach to focus on winning uh, now in, informatized uh, lo- local wars under informatized uh, conditions, and that local wars, I presume, really refers principally to Taiwan. So uh, the the development of the capabilities to use space assets to uh, fight uh, a, a, and win a war in Taiwan has been a key focus of, of the Chinese uh, PLA uh, for decades now uh, so that's where it will have the most advanced capabilities of course we've we've heard now read now in the, in the paper today about balloons being floated uh, toward Taiwan but I assume that's partly uh, to uh, create additional resiliency in these in these in these, uh, in these uh, information gathering intelligence gathering systems so uh Developing uh, the capacity to use space assets has been a major focus of the Chinese PLA and continues to be.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, uh, shifting from the security side to the uh, then sort of the uh, commercial side, you know, we've been mentioning the growing importance of private companies in space, um, and we certainly see uh, private, semi-private, both state-owned enterprises as well as things that we might recognize as private companies, uh, you know, in China and so forth. Um, so how should the U.S. think about uh, cooperation and competition commercially with China in these areas? Do we treat China like we would any other foreign country, you know, France and Japan and Canada, or, do we, or, um, or India even? Or do we put it in a special category? If so, why and, and, for, and for, for what purposes? So as China itself develops its own uh, non-state enterprise you know, sort of entities, uh... what should the state department or commerce or u.s. trade representative uh... what should we be, th- be thinking about here something to sort of encourage because it gives them maybe a, a stake in a in a uh, wealthier and stable environment or something to discourage because it simply builds dual use capability that under civil military fusion they'll exploit for nefarious purposes how do we balance that mm-hmm. some questions <laughs> are some questions are secrets. some questions are mysteries you know uh...
6: I mean, this is a really thorny issue. This is the challenge, especially given China's military-civil uh, fusion policy. And, and in any case, a lot of uh, a lot of the technologies uh, in space are dual use, or maybe more than dual use. Uh, in any case, so uh, here. Uh, Finding a path through all of that is difficult, but I think a number of you mentioned that you know in the in the, that it's not impossible. Uh, so how do we we sort that out? As far as whether companies are private or state-owned, uh, you know that in a, is a matter of degree, and I think uh, the uh, that governments play an important role in uh, promoting innovation in the space arena all around the world. So I, I mean there there are uh, certainly uh, Chinese companies that have. Uh, much closer ties to the Chinese military and we'd want to understand that very carefully and uh, well there're also as you mentioned others that are, are are really quite private a lot of the the new space launch companies for example some of the satellite companies uh, and uh, uh, but you know, as we learned in the balloon case again, uh, many of them may work closely with uh, with China's PLA. I mean, we, it's a it's a very complicated ecosystem, and this is one of the challenges uh, in uh, dealing with China is that there's no clear separation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in times past, I mean, I mean uh, both in Xi Jinping's early days and uh, and, and before that, um, I think the idea of there being a distinct sector uh um, was more plausible. But since you know what's happened with Jack Ma and other people what's happened with Hong Kong, you know, the idea of a private sector, you know, while plausible but while possible is not plausible, I guess is what I was trying to say, because so we're keying off of what do we see as what the PLE leadership has done in terms of even allowing entities uh, you know, sort of to exist. And maybe that's self defeating, that they will simply limit their competitiveness, you know, by that heavy handedness they might be doing more economic damage uh, as a result of that political requirement
6: well, there's a lot of speculation about about uh, the, the pattern of uh, the Chinese state absorbing some of China's most innovative companies and what that will do for Chinese innovation uh, long term uh, something to, to watch closely and and space is is a uh, you know Xi Jinping ha- has uh, has uh, sing- has singled it out as, as a, <coughs> a, a key uh, arena for Chinese innovation. Putting mm-hmm. a lot of resources into uh, promoting uh, space including uh, military civil cooperation mm-hmm.
1: so we've been making um progress as bruce uh, mentioned in soft power with uh, diplomatic initiatives and the direct descent asat ban and so forth uh gaining um, gaining uh, support norms of behavior i think gaining gaining support uh, do we risk undercutting that or just or does china risk un- undercutting that and both of us being uh, condemned by developing countries in the mega constellation world, it's certainly certainly a hot topic. If you're inside of you know UN and COPUSH and you hear a lot of countries doing that. So is mega constellation something that, since both China and, and the U.S. are doing it, uh, there's no comparative advantage uh, between the two, uh, or um, are there ways that we can handle mega constellations in a way that uh, either supports or doesn't undercut you know our soft power and uh, advances in other areas convincing people that we're the wonderful people to hang out with this is
2: where you have a situation i think where uh, and hopefully the united states is pr- continues to pursue it where if you have technologists and diplomats working together to have a to craft a coherent policy it doesn't it doesn't have to be somebody wins and, and somebody loses uh, there are gains out there for China as well as for the United States and our, our allies uh, if we can work together. Uh, when you say what you, how do we handle that that kind of a situation about uh, uh, interaction with uh, private co- private Chinese companies, the first thought that came to my mind was very carefully, very carefully. Avia, <laughs>
3: okay. yeah, I would I would take. Uh, uh I'll, I'll object to the premise that there's something inherently wrong with mega, mega constellations. I mean, they are providing space-based internet to indigenous communities, to, to remote areas, to countries which otherwise wouldn't have internet. So, so they are serving a, a, a global good, obviously. They are, you know, they are expanding our economy, right? We have now a new sector where we can get high-paying jobs. So that's really important. And so far, uh, you know, the, I mentioned sort of two major companies that have constellations. They are being very responsible, right? So one of the companies is working closely with this uh, ground-based uh, astronomy community to make sure that they don't uh, you know, interfere with astronomy, astronomical observations. The other one is being very careful about uh, you know, removing their satellites from orbit in, in a safe way. So mm-hmm. I, I, so far, I do not see any indication that you know, we are, I mean, we obviously have to talk. We have to have good SSA all of that but but I don't think that has uh, mega constellations are an inherently bad idea
2: oh I, I would agree with you about that It's sort of a, but you can, you can go too far if, as long as uh, companies and entities behave responsibly with the recognition of what their larger responsibilities are uh, I, it's certainly in the national security field um, um constellations are a great way to deal with with uh, security threats my my only concern on it and the reason why we raised it here is the potential that where unchecked completely unregulated uh, uh behavior could lead to b- to bad outcomes multiple i mean twenty five thousand uh, close warnings per day i'm not I, I that makes me feel uneasy that's been projected where you, the you, where you might have a uh, satellites coming to a, uh, close enough that there's a possibility of a collision. So I, I'm on your side on on mega constellations. Just do we need to be careful.
1: I would say that there's a there's a linkage here in that uh, one analogy has been proffered to me is that uh, yes, there's lots of these things up there, uh, but if they're under control, big if under control and managed, it's like having you know the USC marching band. It does all kinds of complicated things, <laughs> uh, but but perfectly safe. And, and the, re- the link in that analogy is information. That is, if we don't really know what's up there, or if the error bubbles around our satellites are really large, and we have to be really conservative, and we don't know where these things are. So the issue of carrying capacity is, in turn, linked to the issue of, well, how much information do you have? If you have very little information about the space environment if your ssa is really bad you don't have access and whatever uh, then your carrying capacity is probably going to be pretty low uh, because you don't know where things are and what risk you're running if your information is very high high resolution broadly available trusted things are under control your carrying capacity may be gigantic Um, and so again there's this sort of linkage it's not merely the matter of do i have rules and somebody in charge it's what information do those people have and what decisions can people make based upon trusting that information?
2: I've got to remember that analogy
1: of the <laughs> mega constellations in the USC. The USC market, <laughs> not that's Stanford, not uh, Stanford. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well,
5: that All again right. that underlines the importance of engaging between the U.S. and China to be able to get that information, so you can have that you know ability to make informed decisions and try and make good, good policies. Again, whether or not you like China, they are there, and the U.S. has got to figure out a way in which to engage with them in order to ensure sustainable use of outer space.
1: Very good. And uh, I think with that, we're a little over uh, past the hour. I need to uh, conclude uh, the session, but I'm here to remind uh, the audience you're welcome to join us for uh, for coffee and, and further conversation. Uh, and uh, I thank you for all being here today and, and taking part uh, in the discussion, and thanks for some of the really great questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this event.